Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. I want to take just a moment at the beginning of this time to remind everyone of our resource section out by where you would check in or check your kids in, where there are books and many books like this one, which I think is particularly helpful to us because we have been working our way through the book of Revelation for quite some time, and that has brought to our minds the reality now and in the future that we do very much live in a dangerous world. And sometimes those realities awaken in us fears and concerns and struggles to trust God and to know how and why he does the things that he does. And while a little mini book like this, Living in a Dangerous World, Moving from Fear to Faith, doesn't answer just outright all of those questions, we do have so many resources at our resource table that counsel to the very issues of our hearts. And I know that uh, as we get in the normal routine of church life, Sunday to Sunday, and kind of the same things may happen every week, that we can forget about the resources that we have and just kind of overlook them and walk right past them. So let me encourage you to take some time every now and then. We care very much about the teaching of our church. We care very much about the lives that we live and the truth that we hear and how the gospel can comfort and challenge and change us. And so I hope that you'll take a look and maybe even this mini book is right for you or another one. So this is a good opportunity to remind you of that. As we look uh, now to our next text in the book of Revelation 17 through 21, you know, the most important line in any story or in any book is always the very first. I think about that a lot in preaching. Every week I try to think, what's a good first line? Well, this morning as we come to this text, this is my first line. It's a hard one, but it's one that we need to hear and that I think every person, whether Christian or unbelieving, needs to embrace. And this first line is that the wrath of God is hurling toward earth on a timeline that no one knows. That's a hard truth. That's a hard reality. That is something that that many of us and certainly many people outside of this room would like to ignore or hide away somehow behind a curtain. Uh, It could be a curtain of our our own making, a curtain of our, our own pleasures in life, which are wonderful gifts from God, and we are to enjoy them. Or it could be hidden back behind the the busyness and the trials and the troubles of life, and we just don't even really think about anything beyond today. We're just trying to get by today. But nevertheless, this is a real truth. It's one that we have been wrestling with over recent weeks in the book of Revelation, and it's certainly one that we're going to wrestle with today as we come to this text, which talks about the last vile or bowl of God's wrath being released on the world in the future. Well, we want to know what will it be like in that time. And so this morning, I want us to see three facts about the coming judgment of the world, which, as I said, is hurling toward a fallen planet and a fallen people on a timeline that no one knows. As always, as we look at this text or any other text in Scripture, certainly in the book of Revelation, Our entire goal is to exalt Jesus Christ as the one who is to be trusted, 
because he is the one who is in control and ultimately for us because he is the one who has showered us with incredible covenant love and grace and has promised to keep us even in the midst of present trouble and certainly in the midst of future events. Those future events that we read about in the book of Revelation that can be so troubling and frightening, we want the truth of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ to comfort those who need to be comforted. And we want these realities to make uncomfortable those who need to be uncomfortable. And that's our prayer this morning is that God would do that in and through us and around us today. Here's the first truth that I would like for us to see from Revelation 16 verses 17 through 21 about this ultimate wrath of God. In the future, the ultimate wrath of God will be surrounding. This is the first truth, the first reality or description that we want to capture this morning as we think about these future days, that these descriptions would would help us have a better expectation and and knowledge of of the future as God's word reveals it to us, but that also it might help us, help us to talk about these things with those who need to hear about them, and then to talk about the gospel, which is the ultimate answer to God's wrath, as we will see shortly. But first, this truth, the ultimate wrath of God will be surrounding. We've noticed this a bunch of times in the book of Revelation already. And it is that presently we see examples of the fallen world and the judgment of God in little places and times and pockets, in small examples compared to what is to come. But nevertheless, the Bible is is telling us, indeed warning us, about a future wrath that's coming that will be an intensification of all of those patterns that we have been seeing along the way. So presently, we see the effects of sin in isolated ways, in isolated places. But as we see this morning, in the final day of the Lord, the application of God's wrath will be complete and it will be surrounding. Notice what this text says in verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl or vial upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. This is coming to the end of this section about these bowls of wrath being poured out. And here we see the surrounding wrath of God coming finally at a time when it is done. And notice the way that it is described. The vision pictures the wrath of God in these ways in verse 18. He says, and there were flashes of lightning in the sky. Flashes of lightning in the sky that you could see with your eyes, lighting up the sky like a lightning storm you could never imagine. You know how it is when there's a lightning storm and the lightning flashes and it strikes the ground and it lights up that portion of the sky. And then again, like fireworks, it lights up that portion of the sky. You turn around and you don't see anything back there. It's all dark because the storm is here. The final day of wrath will be a lightning storm like no one has ever seen or imagined, lighting up the sky in a surrounding judgment. He goes on and says, the sounds 
of peals and peals of thunder will be heard, engaging another sense, another one of those senses that that gives you the, the feeling of being surrounded. Again, just like in the lightning storm, the thunder comes and you hear it and it rattles the ground and it shakes you and it seems to be all around you. The wrath of God in the end will be like this. He goes on and says that there will be a a great hailstorm. Huge hailstones will fall to the earth. Even the islands and the mountains were destroyed, verse 20. You're getting a picture painted of the ultimate wrath of God in the end that is surrounding. This is that asteroid of God's wrath hurling toward the earth. Now that that has been a concern of ours and should be a concern of ours literally on our planet because we live in a broken world. That's always been the concern of NASA. As soon as we've had a a space program that could look out beyond our world to see what is floating or flying or hurling through outer space, that's always been a concern. What if there was a large asteroid or meteor that was flying toward our planet and could do incredible damage to our planet? You may have even seen recently in the news uh, that NASA found one of these asteroids. It wasn't an imminent danger, and I don't know that there is any imminent danger of an asteroid right now. But they did find one that was, that was on its path, and they decided to, to run a test, something that they had been planning for a long time. It goes under the four letters D-A-R-T, DART, which stands for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. This asteroid that was flying through outer space was named Dimorphos. And on September 26th, NASA shot a a kind of spacecraft at the asteroid, trying to line up with its trajectory and run into it to see if, in fact, they could knock it off course because that might be a way that we could prevent, as a civilization, something hitting the planet and doing incredible damage and bringing enormous death. And in fact, it worked. They fired the space shuttle at the asteroid, made contact, and knocked it off of its course onto another trajectory. An amazing, amazing thing. Well, I think as Christians, anytime that we see something amazing in this world, we should look into it for something that would help us better understand Christ, to better understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. When you hear those words that the wrath of God is hurling toward our fallen world on a timeline that no one knows, what hope do you have? What hope could there possibly be? Imagine how hopeless you would feel if it was just a real asteroid. What are we going to do? That's why we've been trying to find a way to redirect it. What are you going to do? You can't do anything. Hide Run, maybe. But think about what the Bible is telling us is coming in the future. A meteor of wrath, of God's wrath that won't just hit part of the world. It won't land out in the ocean. It won't land out in the desert. It will hit the whole world from all sides. What hope do you have? Our hope is securely in Jesus Christ who has knocked that asteroid off its trajectory on our behalf. That is what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, he's done something even better than that. He hasn't just deflected it out of the way. 
he has actually taken the full brunt of wrath on behalf of his people. This is what the gospel is all about. This is why we are so happy to talk about and remember and share and rejoice in and find our gladness in the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. The good news is that he has deflected the meteor of God's wrath from us. He has taken the full brunt of God's anger for our sin having lived a perfect life in our place, which we couldn't have done, dying on the cross in our place, which we really couldn't have done, and then on the third day, risen again. This is the announcement of good news, that he is now welcoming people from all over that world upon which wrath is hurtling. And he is welcoming all different kinds of people to come into his shelter of covenant love, and that he would shield us from anything like that, that we would know his mercy, we would know his grace. That is why the gospel is so wonderful. We should rejoice about that. But you know, it's difficult to rejoice about that if we don't believe in wrath. If you don't believe in in a coming hell, in a coming judgment upon the world, if you don't believe that God is like that, if you don't believe that he would do that, if you don't believe that sin is all that bad, if you don't believe that you are a big sinner, if you only believe that you're a little sinner, then you will have very little joy in the gospel. You'll have very little concern of the gospel. You would, and I would have very little thought of the gospel. What do we need to think about the gospel for? If a little pebble is falling out of the sky into our yard, there's no concern for that. I don't need a savior for that. But that's not what's falling into our yard. And we need a giant savior. And the good news this morning is that we have one. And we have one by faith, not by works. We have one by grace, not because of anything that we could do or because we attracted God or paid him off with a, 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 with a prayer or with our resources or with our time, but rather that as an act of grace alone, he has chosen in Christ to shield us from the wrath that we have deserved, the wrath that we deserved right up until Jesus rose again. It's a wonderful picture. It's an incredible reality. I hope that you'll keep that in your mind this week and in the weeks to come. I hope that you have that on your heart when you read these verses. You must pair these verses with the hope of the gospel or you will despair. They will crush you. They will defeat you. They will spin your life out of control if you pay attention to them at all, unless you have the balancing, tempering, relieving, freeing, forgiving grace of God in the midst of them to see your place as someone who is being spared of this great wrath all because of grace. In this present moment in our world, questions abound. There are questions all the time about God's view of sin. 
There are two big questions that come up over and over again, sometimes inside our church, often outside of our church. The first is the question, why is there evil in the world? If the Christians are right that God is good and he's full of love, then why is there evil in the world? This question baffles us. The other question that often is raised inside of the church is, well, why do the wicked prosper? These are questions about how God views sin. What are we to, to make of his, his perspective of sin or his concern for sin? And that's what these verses are all about. We are getting, in one way, answers to those questions. What does God think about sin? You read about the coming wrath of God and you get a real clear picture of what God thinks about sin. You have concerns about how do the wicked keep prospering. A people who, who revel in sin, they seem to very often, not all the time, but very often go free. They never get the justice that they deserve. What is going on in this world? Well, passages like this and many others bring to us helpful answers. First, it's the reminder that God has been overlooking sin because he is awaiting a day of final wrath. Why do the wicked prosper now? Ultimately, it's because God is a God of grace. He's a God of patience. We're living in the, in the age of grace, in the era of grace. In other words, there is time for, for someone to come to Christ now and to receive his grace, to come into his covenant love under the shelter of his mercy, to be known by him and to know him, to be satisfied by him, just as we sang this morning, to become the kinds of people that wait on him and love him and trust him and depend upon him and rest in him, the kind of people who have all of their fears assuaged because of him. But we're living in that age now because another age is coming. We are awaiting a final day of justice. If you want to flip there, you could go back to Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. Actually, I'll start in verse 21. I want to make sure I get that reference real clear because the first thing that I heard a couple of weeks ago when I got home was you misquoted the address of that verse, which really makes me thankful that people are paying attention that closely. I'm always happy to be corrected on that. I would rather misquote it and everybody know than for us not to know our Bibles. Let's look at Romans verse, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
we are approaching another day of reckoning. There was previously a day of reckoning when God reckoned with Christ in his son. But there will come another day of reckoning. It's a day of reckoning that we're trying to understand and that we're trying to communicate to others. Because in that final day, there will be no more questions of what God thinks about sin. No one will ask in that day, how can a good God let evil go on in the world? No one will ask in that day, why do the wicked prosper? It will be clear, crystal clear, what God thinks about wrath. Because God will act then on his complete hatred of sin and false worship. And we are grateful to be in the age of grace now and that we will be in the hand of grace then. Not because we have done anything, not because of our works, not because of our good looks, certainly, but because of his grace. Because of his grace. Ephesians 5.16 tells us, So then, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The first use or application of this text to our lives should be just that, that we would be the kinds of people who redeem the time, recognizing that the days are evil, that the world is marching toward an ultimate day of judgment. Therefore, we want to redeem the time, to exalt Christ, to announce the gospel, to revel and rejoice in it ourselves. This is the first way that you can put this text into practice. Be thinking this week how you can make the most of the days of grace. What can you do to make grace known to others? Have you been sharing the gospel with coworkers? If you haven't or you've been struggling, recommit yourself to that. Call out to God to give you grace so that you can share grace. There's plenty of grace to go around. Redeem the time. Are there others that you could be talking with, sharing with? Are there others that you could be comforting with grace, believer or unbeliever? There are so many Christians that are afraid of the day of wrath because they misunderstand the big, bright beauty of the gospel. So in the day of grace, make the most of grace in this first truth because the wrath of God will be surrounding The second truth we see this morning is that the ultimate wrath of God will be devastating. It won't only be surrounding, but it will, in its surroundingness, it will be intense and devastating. Now, we we already know and have a sense of that, but the Bible is putting on display for us a clearer and clearer picture of what that will be like, even in the language that's being used. Notice in verse 18, this is where we read about the flashes of lightning, the sounds and peals of thunder. And then he says, there was a great earthquake. But notice the way the earthquake is described. It's not an ordinary earthquake. It's an earthquake such as there had not been since mankind came to be upon the earth. But then he goes on and he clarifies again, so great an earthquake was it and so Mighty, the whole earth will quake. 
Notice the way that it talks about Babylon, which is a reference to, to uh, a city that pictures the fallenness of humanity, the unbelieving world system. Verse 19, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Verse 20, every island fled away and disappeared and no mountains were found. Even further, huge hailstones weighing about a talent each. A talent is 100 pounds. Huge hailstones weighing about 100 pounds came down from heaven upon people and people blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Because the hailstone plague was extremely severe. A hundred pound hailstones around the world. Now I know that when we hear that, that is hard to believe. I think it's probably fair and honest to say there's not anyone in here who says, oh yeah, I believe that, no problem. I think everyone in here has something within you that struggles to wrestle with this, struggles to believe this. But that's part of the reason that it's here is because there is this remaining unbelief in our hearts and it raises the question for us of who will we believe? Who will we stand with? Who will we listen to? We've heard over and over again on the pages of Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, that the Lord himself is the one to believe. That when we are unclear or we are unsure, we defer to his wisdom. We defer to his words. We take him at his word. That's the very best thing that we can do with the word of God is to take his word at his word because the stakes are enormous in the world the ultimate wrath of God will be devastating. This may bring back to your memory something that we saw in Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read this brief passage because it so clearly reflects the, the sense of panic and destruction that comes because of the wrath of God in the world. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the eminent powerful people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The wrath of God in this day will be devastating on the earth. Take a moment and try with these pictures to imagine what you've heard already this morning. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what this will be like for people on the earth. I imagine that it's very 
similar to what I recently heard, which were recordings of you know, a number of decades ago when, when there were um, warnings or um, expectations of what a nuclear war would mean. And they made videos to try to prepare people for the reality of what would happen in the world if there was a nuclear war at the time of, of the Cold War negotiations and, and all of the arms race going on. And even though it was only acting, just the audio was chilling as you hear people weeping and moaning and crying in, in what is manufactured, but utter fear. Can you imagine that? This is what the wrath of God in the world will be like. That gives a sense of what God thinks about sin and how devastating it will be in that day. Hailstones. A hundred pounds. You know, I looked online, the largest hailstone uh, ever fallen or found was in 2010 in South Dakota. It was 1.8 pounds. It was seven inches wide. A 100-pound hailstone is 32 inches wide. Imagine falling to the earth everywhere. These hailstones, 100 pounds each falling from the sky. Think of, of a wrecking ball. A wrecking ball that's used to knock down a building is far, it's far heavier than a 100-pound uh, hailstone, but it only moves at 22 miles per hour. This picture that's being painted here is of 100-pound hailstones falling to the earth at terminal velocity of 285 miles per hour. The hailstone that fell in South Dakota fell and crashed through someone's roof and dented into the floor. It was a pound. It will be devastating. Simply put, the world will not survive this devastation. But again, we have good news. And the good news for those who belong to Christ is that God will rebuild. He will destroy because of his enemies. And he will rebuild because of his friends. Revelation 21, the end of the story. Hear it again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, no longer any effects of sin that have has wreaked havoc on the world until then. The first things have passed away. This is what it will look like for people to belong to him. This is, this is what we will enjoy. This is what, Lord willing, people from all around the world who have become Christians after today will enjoy. This is what we want people all around the world because of missionaries sharing the gospel to come and believe and join in with us. 
We want this to be true of people in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. We want as many people as possible to come into the shelter of God's mercy so that in this day, after he destroys, we will be there when he rebuilds and we will be with him after he has done away with sin. So for today, here's the second application of this text. We know by faith, as we continue and persevere by grace into the future, that we will be with him, that we will belong to him. But it's also true that we already belong to him. If you're in Christ, you belong to him now. Therefore, let's answer this question together. How can we show that we belong to him now? How could we show the world that we belong to him and we have, we have received this incredible hope and that we are welcoming along with Christ all different kinds of people to come with us? How could we do that? Could there be anything more beautiful, anything more worthy of your time than to show the world that you belong to him and that they can belong to him too and for that to be attractive so we can apply this text, answering this question by believing and praying. This is what God's people do. They believe and they pray. They trust in God to hear them and act, and they know that they have no power. We feel helpless now. There's no asteroid coming to earth, and we feel helpless. We can't change anything. I can't even change my own heart, let alone anybody else's. Therefore, we believe in him because he has granted us this belief. And now we pray to him and we ask him to do his work. We ask him to use us so that more people may come into the ark of God's safety. This is the joy of knowing Christ. We want more people to know this and we want to rejoice in it ourselves. This is the most important thing that could happen in anyone's life at any point in history is to come to faith in Christ. There's nothing better. There's nothing more world-changing. And, and what puts on display the, the incredible power of the gospel in our lives is that all that we're reading here will still happen. Our coming to faith in Christ will not stop this from happening. It's still going to happen. Our coming to faith in Christ today is not going to eliminate the hardships that we have. It's not going to just eliminate the temptations and the trials. But what it does is rather than eliminate something, it brings to us someone. It brings to us someone who's going to walk with us. And that is the greatest proof of the power of the gospel that there possibly could be, is that we become the kinds of people who don't have to clamor for our circumstances to change because we'll be just fine with Christ no matter what will come. I read an article recently that recounted uh, in 1983 uh, what Ronald Reagan was talking about to the nation about the threat and concern of communism around the same time of the Cold War. And he recounted overhearing a dad talking to his daughters about what at this time was the world's, you know, uh, United States' biggest concern was communism taking over the world. And hearing this father say, I would rather my daughters 
die believing in God than to live in a communist world and die not believing in God. Do you hear, do you hear that kind of fear of the world? Do you hear that? You might even hear echoes of that in your heart. You, you might even feel sometimes like that. Like, wouldn't it be better just like not to grow up in this kind of world because the world is so bad? That's a real testimony to what sin is like, how, how bad sin is. We live in a really fallen world. But this is the beauty of the gospel, is it not? That even though this world is this way, the gospel delivers us from that kind of thinking. It delivers us from escapist thinking. It gives us the kind of hope that we need so that we don't always look for a way to run out of the problems or run out of the world or to get out of the way of some kind of trouble or temptation or trial. But nevertheless, we trust God. Of course, we we make wise decisions about our circumstances and caring for one another in the midst of danger, of course. But nevertheless, our ultimate focus is on walking with Christ through them. And that is the beauty of what it means to belong to him. The last truth of this morning is that the ultimate wrath of God, in addition to being surrounding and devastating, it will also be confirming. This is a truth that we dealt with a a few weeks ago because of that sense that sometimes lurks in our hearts that, that, wow, God's being really hard on the world and all the people in the world are really, you know, kind of well-intentioned folks. And, you know, they just really wish that things could be different. They'd like to know God, but, you know, he's just so set on bringing wrath that he's not going to let that happen. We answered that before, but we answer it again. Because what we see in this last bit of our text, in this last truth, is that the wrath of God, when it comes upon the world, will confirm why he's bringing wrath. It will confirm the drunkenness of sin over human hearts all around the world because it will squeeze the people of the world and what is inside of them will come out. I know that's like a trite cliche, you know, that we use a lot, but it is quite true. You know, we say if you take a lemon and you squeeze it, what comes out? Lemon. If you take an orange and you squeeze it, what comes out? Orange juice. And therefore we make the logical conclusion that if we squeeze you, what's inside of you will come out. And that is very true. In fact, that's what will be seen even in this time of final wrath. It will be confirming. Just look at verse 21. Huge hailstones weighing 100 pounds each came down from heaven. By the way, little grammatical note in your copy of of the Bible and probably what you can see on the screen is an asterisk next to the word came. It means that the translators of the Bible translate away for that would be a little more readable, but actually what it means is that this thing that's happening, the verb, is, is like tumbling, 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 constantly, constantly happening. It's not something that just happened in the past and stopped. It's a kind of tumbling hailstones, 100 pounds each, are tumbling from heaven. They're falling and 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 falling everywhere all the time. Down from heaven upon people. And then it says it again, go a little bit further right to the end of the verse because the hailstone plague, there's an asterisk, was extremely severe. It was severe and severe and severe and severe and severe and severe. Boom, 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 all over the world. And what will people do? 
They will blaspheme the God who sends them. That's what it says. Huge hailstones weighing 100 pounds each came from heaven, one after another, upon people. And people in their dying breath blaspheme him. Out of their hearts come all kinds of cursing and gestures and hatred, despising him. Even then, they don't tap out. They don't say, enough, enough. You, you are all there is. I want to know you. Oh, please make peace with me. Please come to know me. Save me, save me, save me. That's not what the human heart does. And if that's what you expect, if that's what you think the human heart is like, you have really become mistaken. The human heart is a dumpster fire of false worship and blasphemy. Left to itself, nothing good comes out. Nothing. Not a drop of goodness. And you see it right here. To the very end, the whole world says no. And that's why wrath comes. So where are we? Where are we? We are the people who when the hailstones fall, we say yes. We say I love you. I trust you. Thank you. You are gracious to me. I will walk with you. I want you. That's what we say. And why do we say that? Well, of course, we say that because we are so smart. We saw what was going to happen, and we made the right decision. We're the the clever ones. We're the good people of the world. Is that why? No. We say yes because God, in an expression of infinite mercy and grace, reached down into our hearts, and he said, You are mine. I'm giving myself to you. I am taking you for myself. That's what he's done. And that's why we can rejoice in grace because of this. We have that on our hearts this morning that we would rejoice in grace. And we should do that when we sing. We should do that when we leave. We should do that when we pray at lunch. We should do that when we talk to the waiter or the waitress. We should do that when we are at home. We should do that everywhere that we can to revel in the gladness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And even when we don't quite understand and we don't quite believe that is going to happen like that, we say, yes, I will trust you. I want to hear from you. You tell me. You tell me. It's not a deficiency in you, God. It's a deficiency in me. Help me. Help my unbelief. I want to invite you to stand with me as we pray. And we prepare our hearts to sing yet again. And I really pray and hope that we can take these truths with us into these songs and into our lives. And don't don't leave them here. Take them with you. Rehearse them in your mind. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we are in desperate need of your grace. Even today, we are so grateful that you have been gracious and merciful to us. We, we know, at least in part, we know the truth of what our hearts are like. We know, we know in some sense how bad off we were, how far away we were. And we know that we never could have found our way back. But you found us. You came to us. You have, you have given us your grace. You have set your love on us. And it has made all the difference in our lives. Oh God, we pray this morning that as we sing these songs, the truths would awaken in us a renewed gratitude and sense of joy and gladness because of your goodness to us. And God, as we look forward to the, to the future of what you have planned for this world, we We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with you. And we look forward to the final justice in the world that you will bring to a world that says no. But we pray that now in the age of grace that many others will say yes because you have have worked a work in them as you have in us. We pray that you would use us in this way and that you would help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 